Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans from of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners, as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We, will, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. As a son of immigrants, I inherited from my parents a strong sense, a belief in historical progress. You see, when my parents immigrated from Korea to America, they did so because they believed they would have a better life here. Optimism, hope, is why they purchased their one-way tickets Optimism is why they uprooted their lives and moved to a country whose language, custom, customs, and foods are strange. In many ways, their optimism represents the American dream, does it not? It represents the American spirit. This belief that if you work hard, roll up your sleeves, and are unafraid to get your hands dirty, you will succeed. And throughout our country's history, there's always been a strong sense in humanity's progress. That as a country, with every successive generation, we will evolve and get better. There was a conviction that each generation would leave the world a better place for the next, that the world our children will inherit is better than our world, and the world that their children will inherit is better than theirs. This optimism and hope is best captured by a school performance 
I participated in when I was in third grade. At the end of the assembly, all the students went up on stage. We held each other's hands and we began to sing, We Are the World. And I remember closing my eyes and singing my heart out, truly believing, uh, believing that if we all work together, we'll make this world a better place, just you and me. Today is 2022. All that optimism, all that hope has come to a screeching halt. Optimism replaced by skepticism, hope replaced by pessimism. A recent international study conducted by UNICEF found that young people in high-income countries like ours are extraordinarily pessimistic about their economic future. 59% of 15 to 24-year-olds believe that they will be worse off than their parents economically. Another scientific journal found that 59% of young people are extremely worried about our global environment, about our climate. They are afraid of the world that they will inherit. According to the CDC, the suicide rate for girls between 15 to 19 doubled in the last decade. You don't commit suicide if you are optimistic, if you are hopeful. You commit suicide when you are hopeless. More than any previous generation before, since all the way back to the 1960s, Generation Z is the most pessimistic about the future. And a lot of these surveys were done before the pandemic before COVID-19, before George Floyd, before the riots at the Capitol. And I don't blame Generation Z for their pessimism. With the rise of technology, the influence of smartphones, now the world has become a smaller place where videos that capture injustices, violence, atrocities are immediately downloaded into our feeds. And so daily we are bombarded with news, horrible news that is going on around the world. No wonder why they're pessimistic. Just this past January at my kids' high school, during a basketball game against Laguna Hills High School, video was captured of a fan of, at, at, on the other side at Laguna Hills stands chanting racial epithets at one of Portola's African-American basketball players. While he was at the free throw line shooting free throws, they record this student yelling, where is his slave master? You need to chain him up, chain him up. This didn't happen in the deep south. This happened right here in our own backyard. 
We have serious issues facing our country, racial inequality, gender inequality, economic disparity, homelessness, mental illness, rise in homicides, domestic violence. The list goes on and on. And what makes this all the more frustrating is that our government leaders are too busy fighting each other than they are tackling our problems. Our government is more fractured and polarized and suspicious and skeptical of each other than ever before. How in the world are they going to solve our problems? In the meantime, a war rages on in Ukraine and innocent women and children are being displaced and murdered every day. And so I share this to let you know that if there's ever a time for us to hear about the message of Easter, it is now. I find myself longing, yearning for the hope that Easter brings, and I want to share that hope with you this morning. And the way I'm going to share and talk about Easter is by addressing a chapter in the Bible that is often overlooked, but I want to bring it to your attention because it is brimming with Easter hope. I'm talking about Isaiah 25. Right off the bat, it begins with hope as the prophet Isaiah declares in verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done Wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. What jumps out with this statement is Isaiah's use of the personal pronoun, I. I will praise you. I will exalt you. You are my God. Because most of the time when Isaiah speaks, he uses the first person plural, we, us, our. As a prophet of Israel, he often speaks as a representative of the entire nation. But right now, he is so filled with joy, he erupts in, I want to praise you. Why? Well, two reasons uh, uh, undergird Isaiah's joy. The judgment of God and the salvation of God. The judgment of God is found in the beginning and the end of this chapter. For example, in verse 2, Isaiah declares, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And then Isaiah says something very similar at the end of this chapter. In verse 12, he says, And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. And so both in the beginning and the end, Isaiah basically says that God will one day bring judgment upon the city of man. He's going to tear down the high walls that they have uh, built up and will crumble it to a pile of dust. And what are these cities guilty of? According to verse 4, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the needy. They're guilty of being ruthless towards the disadvantaged. Now, I understand that for some of you, picturing God judging seems very unpleasant. It seems a bit 
offensive to you to think of a God that judges people, that sends people to hell. I mean, I've heard people say to me before, Jeff, I don't believe in a God that gets angry, that judges people, because you see, my God is a God of love. He would never do that to someone. While I understand where that objection comes from, what I've noticed is a lot of times the people who only believe in a God of love at the expense of justice are people who live relatively comfortable, affluent lives. Because you see, while the, the doctrine of God's judgment might be offensive to you, for millions of people all over the world, the gospel or the, the doctrine of God's judgment brings relief and peace to them. What sounds offensive to you is precious to others, especially people who live in war-torn parts of the world, especially for people where news of murder, kidnappings, and human trafficking are a, a, a daily basis. For such people who live in really impoverished, oppressed areas of the world, the doctrine of God's judgment is precious to them. The idea of a God who never judges, who doesn't get angry, who doesn't care about evil is absolutely undesirable for them. They don't want to have anything to do with a God who looks the other way. And so this message of judgment has given hope to millions throughout history and millions today, I think of the many Ukrainian Christians, the many Ethiopian Christians, the North Korean Christians holding on to this hope. Yet Isaiah 25 is not known so much for its depiction of God's judgment as it is of God's salvation. While God's judgment flanks chapter 25 in the beginning and the end, smack dab in the middle, you have one of the most sublime pictures of God's salvation. A sublime picture of what awaits God's people in the future. If you are a foodie, you're going to especially love Isaiah's take. He says in verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Isaiah sees a global feast in the future a feast where people from every tongue, tribe, and language are seated, a feast where the rich and the poor, where rulers and beggars, where able-bodied people and disabled people are seated together. And this is no ordinary feast. This is a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. If Isaiah were alive today, he would say that this feast is prepared by a three-star Michelin chef where Japanese grade A5 Wagyu beef is on the menu 
where the most expensive bottle of wine, champagne, scotch, or gin is available. It's going to be that good. And of course, whenever we see a feast in the Bible, even today, whenever someone throws a feast, it's usually for an occasion. They're celebrating something. Today, we throw feasts to celebrate birthdays, graduations, weddings. So what is God celebrating here? The answer is found in verse 7, which reads, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is this covering that Isaiah speaks about? He's talking about the veil that widows wear at a funeral, the veil that children wear when their dad has died. And this veil is a covering that spreads over the entire earth. Ever since the days of Cain and Abel, death has terrorized humanity. Death has robbed us of people that we love. And so we are a people who are either afraid of death or mourning because of death. We wear this veil that covers us. Death has a way of obscuring our vision, our perspectives on life. And Isaiah says that God is going to swallow up that covering so that it no longer impacts us. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. Not only the impact of death, but also the source of death. He is going to swallow death itself. One day, Isaiah says, death will die. If you've been touched by death, you know how painful death is. If you haven't been touched by death, one day you will. Isaiah says, one day death will terrorize us no more. Death will die. Praise God. And what is the first thing God does after swallowing death? Does he run around and do a victory lap celebrating his conquering of death? Does he throw himself a parade where we line the streets yelling and cheering? No, Isaiah says in verse 8, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. What a wonderful picture. Scholar E.J. Young makes this point he says, do you know what kind of people wipe away tears from your faces? Have you ever considered who has access to touch your face? I mean, can you imagine what you would feel if you saw Pastor Lewis walk by me and brush away my tears? <laughs> You'd be like, that's a little strange. Why? 
Because the act of wiping away tears is reserved for intimate loved ones. A mother, father, a spouse, maybe your siblings. And yet here, God, in his compassion, he doesn't send an angel to wipe away our tears. He doesn't just let our tears dry up. We have a picture of him stooping down and wiping away all of our tears personally. And so you have this beautiful depiction of our future that showcases not only a God of triumph, but a God of tenderness. And Isaiah says, this is why we celebrate. This is our future. This is where history is driving towards. The refrain, and they lived happily ever after, is not just reserved for Disney princesses. No, the refrain, happily ever after, is an eventual reality for all of God's people. Now, I know some of you are thinking, how do you know? Jeff, just because the Bible says it's true doesn't necessarily make it true. Jeff, this all sounds nice and good. It makes me all warm and fuzzy on the inside. But what makes the Bible any different from another fable, a myth, a short story? After all, You can't test the Bible. The Bible's just full of sayings of values and virtues and vices. It's like every other religious text that just tells you what to do and how to live, and you can't empirically test values. You can't prove that being a selfless person is better than a selfish person. It's empirically impossible to test. So the thinking goes. But you see, the Bible is different from any fable or fictional story. Because you see, at the core of the Bible is history. History. The Bible is centered on the real birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, history is not just a part of the Bible, it's the core of the Scripture, so much so that the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. Christianity is useless. And so since it's centered on the real entrance of Jesus into time and space 2,000 years ago where he lived, died, and rose again, then it can be tested. Then it can be verified. This explains why the angel in Matthew's gospel rolls away the stone that covers the tomb. Kathy Keller makes the insightful observation that after the angel rolled the stone away, you would expect Jesus to emerge, but he doesn't. Instead, the angel tells the visitors 
He is not here. In other words, Jesus left his tomb long before I rolled away the stone. And so Kathy writes, quote, To my surprise, I realized that the stone needed to be rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. The angel rolls away the stone, not to let Jesus out, but rather so that we can look in and verify that Jesus truly rose from the grave. Let me ask you, how can you tell if you're reading a PhD dissertation versus a fictional short story? How can you tell if you're reading a novel like a Harry Potter book versus a a historical telling of the Civil War? Usually, it's the presence or absence of footnotes. Someone who is trying to tell you the truth, someone who is writing a dissertation, that person is going to fill their paper with footnotes. Why? It's his or her way of verifying that what they're saying is true. See, don't just trust me. Look at all these other resources of people who also agree with what I'm saying. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, what do you find? Names. Specific names of people. Paul saying more than 500 have witnessed the risen Lord, many of whom who are still alive. What's he doing? He's dropping footnotes. He's telling us, don't just believe me because I'm saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Here are all these other people that will also verify that what I've said is true. And so for those of you here this morning who have doubts about Christianity, doubts about whether the Bible is true, I want to welcome your doubts I want to encourage you to not just stop with your doubts and say, then Christianity can't be true, but explore them. Investigate the resurrection. Talk to me. I'll give you lots of resources that support that the resurrection really did happen. Because you see, as Christians, we're not afraid of doubts and questions because we believe that history is on our side. And so this is the picture that Isaiah paints for us of our future. At the end of time, God is going to bring judgment to some and salvation to others. And I know what you're thinking. How do I know if I'm part of those who will be saved rather than those who will be judged? What differentiates the two groups? Well, when you read Isaiah chapter 24 through 26, where he talks about these two groups of people, a sketch emerges about the characteristics of both parties. For those who will be judged, they are, they are those who describe themselves as strong, verse 3. They are those who are characterized as lofty, chapter 26, verse 5. 
But I think the most telling description of those who will be judged is found in verses 10 through 11. I'll read it for us again. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. I want you to pay attention to that last line. Pompous pride, skill of his hands. God says that on that final day, he's going to bring judgment upon the city of man. He's going to reduce the walls into dust. In fact, he's going to reduce the cities into a pile of manure, a dunghill. And so what's left are the, the people of these cities literally in the manure. And Isaiah says that when that time comes, these people, instead of using their hands to look up to God and cry out for salvation and rescue, what do they do? They swim. To the very end, they continue to trust in themselves to save themselves. They don't look to God for rescue. They look to their own resources. Conversely, who are those who are saved by God, who will join him in the feast? Verse 4 describes them as those who are needy, those who are in distress. In chapter 26, verse 1, they are those whose walls are walls of salvation. Instead of being surrounded by walls that they built up with their own hands, they are surrounded by walls that God has built for them. In other words, they are people who do not look to the skill of their hands for their own significance, their own identity, for their own security. Rather, they look to God. And so what differentiates the two groups? One is self-reliant and the other is God-reliant. One looks to their own wisdom, to their own strength, their own skills to become the person they want to be. The other dare not do that because they know they, it's a, a foolish quest to try to live on your own strength and instead allow God to define for them their identity, significance, and security. For the people of God, when they find themselves in the pit of despair, when they find themselves in the muck of life, they reach up to God for help, for their salvation. I'll end my sermon by sharing a story that Brian Chappell shares in one of his books. He writes, two brothers decided to play on sandbanks by the river's edge. Because our town depends on the river for commerce, dredges regularly clear its channels of sand and deposit it in great mounds beside the river. Nothing is more fun for children than playing on these mountainous sand piles, and few things are more dangerous. While the sand is still wet from the river's bottom, the dredges dump it on the shore. 
the piles of sand dry with rigid crusts that often conceal cavernous internal voids. If a child climbs on a mound of sand that has such a hidden void, the external surface easily collapses into the cavern. Sand from higher on the mound then rushes into the void, trapping the child in a sinkhole of loose sand. And this is exactly what happened to the two brothers as they raced up one of the larger mounds. When the boys did not return home for dinner time, family and neighbors organized a search. They found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the mound. He was unconscious from the pressure of sand on his body. The searchers began digging frantically. When they cleared the sand to his waist, the boy roused to consciousness Where is your brother? The rescuers shouted. The younger brother replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother lifted the younger to safety. You see, when God tells us through Isaiah that he will one day swallow death, he didn't just mean it it metaphorically. He would swallow death. In his great love for us, he took upon our judgment and paid the penalty for our sin so that we might stand upon his shoulders and breathe the air of eternal life. You see, all of us in this room are guilty of self-reliance. All of us here are guilty of looking to ourselves for who we are, trusting the skills of our hands. All of us are in a pit of mud, of mire, hopelessly stuck. And yet what separates the people of God apart from the people of this world is that the people of God understand that they cannot save themselves, that they need a savior. They need shoulders to climb on, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so, friends, if you long to join God at that final feast, if you long for God to wipe away every tear, then come to him with empty hands. Don't bring your philosophy. Don't bring your morality. Don't bring your generosity or your charity. Bring to him your empty hands and hold on to the nail-scarred hands of Jesus where he will lift you up on his shoulders. Believe me, the view up there is far better than the view of standing on our own two feet. At this time, I want to invite up uh, our sister Christine Cho, who will be sharing a grace story and offering, I guess you can say, a proverbial footnote to this message. And so let's welcome Christine at this time.
you, Pastor Jeff. Brothers and sisters, I come to you today to share my walk with Christ and the grace and faithfulness that he has shown me and my family. When I reflect on my life, it hasn't been easy. In fact, it has constantly been full of fear, anxiety, isolation, and instability. Yet through those dark times, God never failed to show that he was much bigger than my sufferings. Although I wasn't able to realize it then, I can now see that the trials I faced were part of his greater plan. 12 years ago, my father dropped everything in life, took all of our savings, and left our family. I was 22 at the time and had just graduated from college. I remember feeling both shocked and relieved at the same time. My father was a very broken man and my family had suffered significant mental and emotional abuse ever since I could remember. At that time, my younger sister, Susan, was still in high school, and my mom was a housewife who had a lot of health problems. I quickly realized that the burden of family responsibilities was now on my shoulders. That was one of the toughest years of my life. As the head of the household, I eventually made the decision to cut all communications with my father. I no longer wanted to be in a toxic relationship, even if it meant financial instability. After all, he was the one who had left us first. I remember searching day and night for all sorts of jobs, as the recession at that time was not making it any easier. I remember sitting at our dining table month after month, reviewing all of our bills, expenses, and loans. <clears throat> and feeling anxiety, panic, and fear welling up in my heart. My life had turned upside down so quickly, I never had the chance to process to transition from a college graduate to becoming the breadwinner of the family. Years passed by as I struggled to balance three jobs while trying to push Susan through high school and college and care for my mother's health. I became bitter and angry with both my earthly father and my heavenly father. Where was God when I needed him? Why did he give me such a cruel father on earth? What did I do so wrong to deserve this? All I heard was silence. And because I didn't get any answers from God, or at least the answers that I wanted, I started distancing myself from him and from the church. I felt that the only way I could get out of this mess was for me to take control of my life. I had to because I was now the pillar of my family, and there was no one I could lean on except for myself. Or so I kept trying to convince myself that lie. I did everything I could to build my career with the goal of financial stability and wealth in mind. I thought these were the only things I would need to feel safe and protected and stable. But to my avail, the only things I felt were emptiness and isolation. Something was desperately missing in my life. I knew the answer, but I was too angry to turn back to God. Before I knew it, the years flew by quickly. 
I thought life was finally taking a positive turn. My career was on a fast track. I no longer worked multiple jobs, and I was financially comfortable. I was so proud that my hard work was finally showing its returns, and I felt that nothing could take away this feeling of stability that I thought I had created. That is, until a few years ago when my sister Susan attempted suicide. Susan was hospitalized for two months due to a psychotic break. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia, major depression, and a long list of other mental illnesses. The doctors claimed that these were part of her genetic disposition, and they were not something that could be easily treated or cured. It was devastating to see these illnesses take over her life, completely debilitating her and robbing her of her future. She was only 25 at that time. I remember my mom and I weeping so loudly in the car after every hospital visit. I cried out to God, why? Where is your mercy? Why have you abandoned us like how my earthly father has abandoned me. All I heard was silence, and I turned my back against God again. A couple years passed with great turmoil as my mom and I attempted to navigate through our new life with Susan's mental illnesses. We plowed through so many different medications for her, but nothing seemed to completely work. I was tired and frustrated and felt my own mental health slipping. I kept thinking about how I, would, how I would never forgive my father for leaving me with all of these burdens in my life. I blamed him for making Susan like this. I was filled with so much anger and anxiety for the future that I could barely eat and sleep for many months. I felt so alone, lost, desperate, and empty. These feelings resided so powerfully in me and became permanent when I found out a couple years later that my father had passed away from dementia. My uncle in Korea called me to relay the news and blamed me for my father's death. He said if only I hadn't cut ties with my father, I would have been able to bring him back to the US and get him the right treatment he needed. We ended the call with me being the terrible daughter who had left her father to die. This was the last straw that broke me. What used to be anger and hatred for my father was replaced by guilt, shame, and anguish. I had lost my father. Though he was not a good parent, he was still my blood family. And somewhere inside me, I realized that I had been secretly hoping he would come back to us as a changed man and take responsibility for everything and bring back my normal life. But with the news of my father's death, I lost all hope and purpose in life. For the next year, my mental and physical health declined significantly. I no longer wanted to partake in any social gatherings or hobbies. Most of the time, I was lying in bed at home just staring at the ceiling. I had to take several months off of work because I was severely depressed, and nothing seemed to take away my pain and suffering. I felt alone, and it had been a long time since I knew the feeling of peace and joy. But it was during this time of isolation 
that I started to realize how much I missed and yearned for God's presence. I became aware of the bondages that sin had over me and I was desperate for freedom. These were the times when I actually heard God clearly as he opened my eyes to show me that only he could fill this empty void in my heart. That despite all my sin and brokenness, everything had still been going according to his plan. No problem was bigger than him and nothing was out of his control. I realized for the first time that God had never ignored my cries in the past. In fact, his silence was his way of waiting for me to come and rest in him by trusting in his greater plan. I had been so caught up with building my identity against temporary idols on this earth, such as my career, financial stability, and even my role as the head of the household, that I had forgotten who my God was. My sins separated me from God, but God had continued to pursue me after me this whole time. And I thank and praise God that he loved us so much that he already paid for the price of our sins. Otherwise, I would still be enslaved to my own depression and anger. The fact that I am here in front of you today is a true testament to how alive and present our God is, how patient he is, how almighty and all-knowing he is, and especially how steadfast his love is for us. I can genuinely say that I am at peace today and have an indescribable joy that God continues to pour into my heart. So I encourage you to open your heart ears and eyes, and allow God to work through your lives just he has done for me. Thank you. Your friends. It's tiresome to live by the strength of your own hands. And perhaps God has knocked down some walls in your life. Instead of pulling up your bootstraps and say, well, it just means I have to try harder, would you consider reaching out to the Lord? Would you consider that the reason why he's knocked down those walls is so that you would reach out to him? If that is you, and please come talk to me or your friend who invited you here or any of the other leaders, we'd be happy to get you linked to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you did not abandon this world to end in total destruction. We thank you, oh Lord, that though this world is filled with much hatred and violence and pain and suffering, you sent your son Jesus Christ to give us a future to give us a life with you where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more abandonment, no more anger. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts to help us to see that the best life is a life that sits on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And so help us, O Lord, uh, to, to get on his shoulders. And would you work in our hearts and lead us to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.